pronouncing blessing over children. It's an ancient Hebrew practice. We see it in the scriptures. And we teach our parents here at Uptown Baptist Church to, that they have blessings to confer over their children. And from the time I learned this when I became a new father 22 years ago, and every night before my children went to bed, I laid hands on them and conferred God's blessing on them. And we teach our parents to do the same thing, and I believe our children are in part blessed today because of those blessings that were conferred upon them by my wife and I each night. We still do it today. Bless our children, even the ones that are in college. We bless them, and especially when they're home for the weekend or whatever, we lay hands on them and bless them. They're never too old to be blessed by their parents. And oh, don't you know that world curses them every day. How much more do we need to bless them? Because when every day they get up and they get ready and they go out into this world, it is a sin-sick, cursed world. And so we need to proactively bless our children to guard them from the curses in this world. Now, Father, we ask you one more time to, as we open the book of God to the people of God, that you would take your word and help us to preach with power, with clarity, with love and humility, and help us to hear in like manner. May your word take root and bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Last week we began a new series of messages titled, Leadership is Overrated, but Followership is a Thing. Leadership is overrated, but followership is a thing. The subtitle for, this, for last week's message as well as for this week's message is Rediscovering the Call of Followership. The Call to Followership. Rediscovering that call to followership. It is in my view that in our modern times, there has been an over-preoccupation with the subject of leadership. The focus on leadership has become out of balance and as a result, many followers have become distracted, discouraged, skeptical, cynical about leadership in general, and specifically even sometimes about their own leaders. Sadly, many leaders have added fuel to this fire by their own sins. Hardly a day goes by when some public leader is not brought down by a salacious and scandalous accusation some of which are proven to be true with overwhelming evidence and some remain to be proven. They're simply unproven accusations. Uh, some could argue that we live in a time of unprecedented leadership crisis in el every realm of society, political realm, business, media, church, family. We're in a leadership crisis, no doubt about that. But leadership is only one side of a two-sided coin. The other side of that coin is followership. And the fact of the matter is that followers, followers far outnumber leaders by a lot. If I said to you in this room, how many of you consider yourself leaders, a handful of you would raise your hand. But if I said, 
how many of you are followers? Everybody else would raise their hands. And so not many people are born to lead, called to lead, equipped to lead, or desire to lead. And so most of the people who make up any organization and every organization are followers and not leaders. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a follower. Nothing at all. Followers have as much dignity and self-worth as any leader. Followers have just as much of an important role to play in any organization as leaders do. As a matter of fact, I, I love the way that Miss Karina Fabian of the Business News Daily put it in her, her article titled, The Art of Followership, How to Be an Invaluable Team Player. Here's what she says, quoting, uh, this guy named Mark Babbitt, who's the CEO founder of U-Turn, she says, it may seem like every organization today is hiring for leadership skills. But here is a modern daily reality. Since the dawn of the industrial age, the success of every business can be tracked back to those people who roll up their sleeves and get the job done. Followership matters a lot in an organization. Good followers not only get things done, but they also support the company as a whole. They not only make the goals and the visions of their supervisors a reality, but they add their creative input to improving them. Now, I realize that this quote comes from the business world and the church is not a business. But I think the principle is transferable to any organization, including the family. When we made the decision, for example, to remove the old hard wooden unpadded pews in this sanctuary and replace them with these beautifully upholstered padded chairs that you're sitting on today, a guy named Gary Arkham, a longtime member of our church, former staff on our, on our church staff as well, he greatly improved this new vision and made it a reality with his critical thinking skills. Rather than asking the why question, like some did, in complaining spirit, why do we need these new chairs and why does it cost so much and why, 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 why? He got the vision. He understood the why because when his father would come and visit and sit right over there where Gary and Vicky are now sitting, he couldn't sit for five minutes in our unpadded hardwood chairs because he's a senior and he's got issues with his back and legs. And so Gary understood the why, but he had questions about the how. So Gary instead asked the how question that I would never have asked or had sense enough to ask. He says, how are we going to deal with the slope of the sanctuary floor unless the back legs of the chairs are custom designed and, and cut shorter? People are going to feel like they're falling out of their chairs forward. I would have never thought of that. And so he came to me and asked that question to me one day. I said, Gary, I have no idea. And, he, and then he gave me an example. He said, so we took a sample chair that we had, and he put it on the slope of the sanctuary, and I sat in it, and I go, wow, you're absolutely right. I said, I have no idea how to solve this problem, but I'm going to call the, the, the company. So I called the chair manufacturing company. I explained the problem. They said, oh, yeah, many sanctuary, we do chairs like this for churches like yours that have sloped floors all the time. All you got to do is figure out the, the, the angle of the slope, and then calculate how many inches need to be cut off the back chairs and give that dimension, that, that, 
those measurements to us, and we'll cut them for you. There's no extra charge for that. Said, great, hung up the phone, then I'm thinking, me and math do not get along. Geometry, slopes, angles, that's not me. So I went back to Gary. I said, Gary, the company can do it, but we got to figure out what the slope of the angle of the slope is and, and translate that to inches. And He goes, Pastor, I got it. And he came here one day after work or maybe on the weekend, and I don't know what he did because I wasn't here, and I didn't even ask him. I don't need to know because that's too hard for my brain. I get a headache when I think about math. <laughs> but Gary did it, and he came back and said, we need to cut, I don't even remember how much, like an inch and a quarter or an inch and three-eighths or something. I said, great, write it down. I, gave it, I called the company back. I told them, and today you are sitting comfortably on the slope of the sanctuary floor because a good follower didn't ask so much the why question, but he asked the how question. How can we get it done? And how can we get it done right? It was incredible. And so Gary, in this example, is a great example of a great follower. He spoke up to share his concern about how the vision was going to be realized, and he was willing to help us get the job done better. Better than it would have been done without his suggestion and his help. As a good follower, he helped lead the leaders to a better execution of the vision. He didn't fight the vision. He helped the leader execute the vision better. That's what good leaders do or, and good followers do. Here's a final quote from Ms. Fabian quoting Mr. Babbage. She says, the most important thing a follower can do to make an impact is embrace their role. Without the so-called followers, even the best plan by the brightest leaders would never be executed. Understand how your spot on the team impacts the bottom line. Find the nobility in a job well done. Then be ready to contribute in every possible way. I realize that, again, these quotes are not from the Bible. But it sure sounds like good advice to me. What if every church member had that attitude to embrace their role as a follower and to understand how their unique spot on the team or church family, if you prefer, impacts the bottom line? And you do know what the bottom line is for us, right? Making disciples of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, part of the vision of replacing these hard, unpadded, wooden pews with the chairs you now have is not just for those who are here, it's not just for our seniors, but it's for those, for example, the 800 new unaffordable condos and apartments that are being built in Uptown Baptist Church. We're going to expect people to leave their unaffordable luxury condominiums and come into a church and be uncomfortable for an hour and a half. They're not doing it, not looking for God. They're not. So how do we help them? It's about making disciples. It's about others, not just about us who are already here. And so the question that every church leader and follower must ask themselves every day is, how am I contributing to my church's bottom line? 
of all the God-given resources I possess, how many of them am I using to help my church win by making disciples for Christ? In the passages that we studied last week, we found nine characteristics of a good follower. I sent them out in my weekly email to the congregation this past week. If you didn't get it, it means you're not on our email list. If you want to get our weekly email, fill out that connection card in your bulletin and hand it to an usher on your way out, and we'll make sure you get on that weekly email so that you get all the goodies that I share with the congregation every week. Now let's turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, back to Matthew, and we're going to learn more on followership from the master teacher who is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is here instructing his disciples about the, his expectations for all those who would follow him. In Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 28, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And then the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth far more than many sparrows. The first characteristics we, we find for today, the first characteristic is that we, we understand that a good follower of Christ has rightly placed fears. A good follower of Christ has rightly placed fears. Fear must have an object. It is like faith. You believe in something or someone. Faith is, is not an abstract thing without an object to be placed in. Fear is the same way. Fear must have an object, and those of us who struggle with fear, we fear one or more of the following, a person, a place, or a thing. When, by God's grace, you decide to follow Jesus, you will encounter many fears. And Jesus knew his disciples would struggle with many kinds of fears. And so he's instructing them here that fear is not all bad. Fear is a feeling, an emotion that, that God made us to have. The trouble is when we place our fear in the wrong thing or the wrong person or the wrong place. Jesus says make sure that your fear is rightly placed. Don't fear people. The worst they can do is kill you. How's that? Feeling better now? <laughs> the worst that your greatest enemy can do is kill your body. But how many of you know you have a soul that will live forever? Either in heaven or in hell. So then Jesus says, fear the one, the person who can kill your body and your soul. That's the person you need to fear. Because the one that can kill the body, so what? Everybody's going to die anyway at some point. Whether you die in your toddler years or you die at 102, like Dr. Seuss. You're going to die. Don't fear 
the person or the thing that can kill you. Fear God who can destroy both your body and your soul. See, nothing, absolutely nothing and no one can touch your soul except God. And, and it's your soul that it's most important because it's your soul that we live, will live for eternity. This body of, or, of ours will, will one day rot in the grave and turn back into dust from where it came. And so as you think about your role as a follower of Christ here at UBC, what and who do you fear? What causes you to tremble with fear in your heart? What is it that causes you to lose sleep at night? It's important that you identify your fears, call them out by name, and then call them out before God. Ask him to forgive you for fearing mere men or mere things or mere places. And then ask him to give you a greater fear of him. A healthy fear and reverence for him who is the savior and guardian of your soul. Some of us are afraid to let our neighbors or co-workers know that we are Christians lest they brand us as evangelicals, which is now like a cuss word in social news and media. Some of us are afraid to share the gospel because we don't want to be ridiculed as being a foolish so foolish to believe in a message from the ancient scriptures. It's not progressive enough for our postmodern world. Some of us are afraid to join the church because there might be some financial or sexual scandal in the leadership and then we would look so foolish to have followed organized religion that our friends so warned us about following. You look at all the scandals in the Catholic church Look at the scandals in the Protestant church. Everywhere you look, there's a scandal. And so we don't want to join anything or anyone and follow them too closely lest we be caught up in scandal. After all, every pastor is a con artist, aren't we? See, Jesus understood that there would be many risks in following him and his church, and so he carefully instructs his followers how to deal with the fears that come with following him. And one of the greatest fears I have is failure. I fear that I will ruin this church. I fear that, that we will not grow to our potential. I, I fear the criticisms of certain people when they call me on the phone and want to meet in my office. And I've had many of those calls and emails and office appointments in my 13 years here, more than my share. If it wasn't, weren't for so many of you praying for me, encouraging me, including my wife and my children, I probably would already quit not only this church, but maybe the ministry. There's a wonderful book written by Edward Welch titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a great book. If you struggle with misplaced fear, you need to read it and reap the benefits. When people are big and God is small. That's the title of the book. It's a great title. It's a great book. And it will help you if you struggle with fear. A good follower of Christ fears God above all others. Verse 32. 
Whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus continues, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Principle number two for good followers. A good follower is rightly proud of his association with our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. In other words, Jesus is not a fan of closet followers. It's ironic to me that our gay friends have proudly come out of the closet while Christians are now hiding in theirs. It is certainly a sign of the end times. And you can read more about it in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 13 which says something like this. It says, woe to you who will live in a day when evil will be called good and good will be called evil. We're living in those times today. I was so encouraged last week, I took my daughter Abigail with me and went to visit Brother Smitty downtown in the hospital. He was sitting up after recovering from surgery and when his nurse came in to check on him, he proudly introduced his nurse to his pastor. And then after some small talk, he said to the nurse, whose name is Marissa, he said, Marissa, you ought to come check out my church. Now, get the picture. Smitty is a slightly overweight African-American retired senior citizen. Melissa is a young, white, blonde, professional nurse downtown hospital. And Smitty is proudly introducing her to his African-American pastor and his multicultural church and saying, you ought to come check it out. Smitty is not ashamed of his association with Jesus or his pastor or his church. A good follower is unashamed of those things and those people. There was no hesitation in his voice. The words rolled off of his tongue as if he does that all the time. I was so proud of him. And I thought to myself, now there is another good example of a good follower. So how about you? How many of your neighbors and co-workers not only know that you're a Christian, but also know that you're a member at Uptown Baptist Church? How many of them have received an invitation from you to come and check out this great church? And how many of them have you proudly shared the good news of the gospel? Your testimony of how God rescued you from your slavery to sin when you were held bound and wrecking, wrecking your life and your soul. A good follower is proud of his or her association with Christ and his church. Verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth, Jesus said. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. How's that? For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a mother-in-law against her mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household, Jesus said. Some of you have experienced that. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, now if I said that, it would be a mass exodus to the door. And yet Jesus says that. When I was in seminary, there was a book that we had to read, a class we had to take. It was called, there are two of them. 
One for the Old Testament called the hard sayings of the Old Testament. Another one was the hard sayings of Jesus. Folks, you just need to know. Jesus says a lot of very, very, very hard, cutting things. And he says them to those who would be want to be one of his followers. He says them to his followers. This is incredible. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. A good follower of Christ puts Christ first. Above all others and all other things, including his own life. Ouch. Does that hurt or what? That's a tough one. Perhaps the toughest characteristic of all the characteristics of a good follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus didn't die on the cross to be second place in your life. Absolutely not. Jesus knows the infinite value of his life to our lives, and so he demands to have the priority in our lives. Followers ought never to be confused about the rightful place Christ must occupy in our lives. He must be number one, first place, first love above all other loves and all other things. When my wife and I got married, she understood that she is second in my heart to Christ. Second only to him. And I am second in her life only to him. We, we just have to have, this is a fundamental understanding of Christianity. And you've got to get this. And if nobody's ever told it to you and you've been a Christian a while, hear it loud and clear today. If you've not heard this, you didn't hear the gospel, the whole gospel. Do you know what it means in verse 38 to take your cross and follow Jesus? The cross of crucifixion was an instrument of unbearable suffering, persecution, and torturously slow death. To take your cross does not mean to put on your shiny gold silver jewelry around your neck, ankle, or wrist. That is not what Jesus is saying. To take your cross does not mean to wear your favorite Christian t-shirt or hat with a cross painted on it. That is not what he means. It means to have an attitude of a martyr. It means that your life is so bound up with Christ that if it comes down to it, you're down with dying for Jesus. And his church. Now that is ultimate loyalty. I know it seems like a strange concept to us here in America, but you need to know that there are Christian brothers and sisters today, right this second, who are suffering persecution and death in countries like Nigeria, Sudan, Iran, Syria, Pakistan, India, China, Indonesia, North Korea, and we could go on and on. So our version of Christianity, our insulated, comfortable version of Christianity is not what the Bible teaches. 
And it is not what millions of Christians today are experiencing in their countries like the ones I just named. The street gangs in our city know something about true loyalty and priority. I met a group of gang members from the CVLs. For those of you who are unaware, the CVLs is the conservative vice lords. It's a ruthless, vicious gang in our city, and there's some of them right here outside the walls of this church. Last week, some of them were sitting on our church steps, and I came out and wanted to have a conversation with them, and we, they stopped to chat with me for a few minutes, and I asked one of them, I said, Who, who's the oldest here? And one of them was standing to my right, he raised his hand and says, me, I'm 31. I said, who's the youngest? There are five of them. I said, who's the youngest? Another one raised his hand and said, me, I'm 14. And I thought to myself, 14? This was in the middle of a school day, in the middle of the school week. You should be in school! Then I realized... This 14-year-old had prioritized his gang family above his own life and his own future. He had mortgaged his life and his future for the gang family. He was more loyal to his gang and his gang leader than he was to his own life and his own family and his own education. I thought, this, does he know, doesn't he know the cost that he will have to pay to be a part of this gang? Doesn't he know that gang life only ends in one of two ways? Either in a box in the ground or a box with bars. So I pled with these guys. I said, guys, put down the guns, put down the drugs, and let me disciple you. Let me teach you a better way. And after a few minutes, they all took my cards. They seemed interested. I said, Pastor, we're going to call you. Because we, we don't want to do this thing anymore. I'm still waiting for the call. You pray with me that God would preserve their lives long enough until they get saved and discipled into God's family gang. Also known as the church. See, if you're going to die, and we all will die someday. If you're going to go to prison, and some, most of these guys will go to jail or prison. You might as well die for Christ. Not because somebody dissed you on Facebook. After they left me, they went down to the corner here, and they're on their phones, and they're throwing up gang signs on live Facebook. And that's what gets them killed. Throwing up signs like this. And that creates a beef four blocks away with the peace stones, and then they get to shooting and killing each other. Over foolishness like that. Crazy. One of our men, Tim Dish, just sent me a video of a guy. He's like his, a self-proclaimed news junkie. And he follows these gangs around and gets the skinny on what's going on on the street. And he just reported, and I hope this is true, he just reported that the two gangs, two major gangs in Uptown that have had a 20-year war with many bodies left in the street, some of which were shot, five were shot right outside our church steps here five years ago. He said there's, there's been a historic truce that has been called just this last week. And he posted that on Facebook, and I, and I pray it is true. Um, because we've been praying for this for a long time. 
And it could be why some of these guys were very interested in talking about what I was sharing with them a few days ago. To follow Christ is to follow his church as long as his church is following Christ. To follow Christ is to love his church as long as his church is loving Christ. See, when you think about the loyalty and the priority of the gang member for their gang leader and their gang family members, how, do, how does your loyalty, how does your prioritizing of your life for Christ and his church family compare? See, those guys are willing to kill and be killed for their gang family. They're willing to do time in jail and prison for their family. What are you willing to do for Christ? What are you willing to do for your pastor, your leader, your church family? This week we hosted a women's conference here at the church. All the women of the church were invited. On Friday night, there were two women here on, in this big room, and it was the two pastors' wives. Where were you women? What kind of commitment is that? Apparently, you don't have the loyalty and the commitment and the priority like some of our gang members do, ladies. Not on this event this week in our church. This is real stuff. Are we playing a game? Is this candy crush time? God help us to be so committed to Christ and so committed to his church that we're willing to take a bullet. Like the guys on the street that are taking bullets for foolishness. And people are dying and going to hell and we're playing games. We can't even get together. It's ridiculous. Wake up church, wake up. We're talking about eternity is at stake. We're not talking about guns and drugs and signs. And these guys in the gangs are so committed. They're willing to take a bullet for the foolishness. What are you willing to take a bullet for? Tell me. How committed are you to each other as this family of faith? This is what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is here talking about. Gang members are told when they join that the stakes are high. Their stakes are high if they want to be in the gang. They have to be willing to put in the work on the block, which means to buy and sell drugs, to buy and sell guns, to shoot and be shot. To be willing to take a longer prison sentence for not snitching. And many of them do that, which is the reason why you've heard on the news the police have a hard time solving some of these cases because nobody's talking to the police. Even those who get shot and their family members are not talking to the police to give up the shooter because there's a no snitching rule. And so the police are doing their own no snitching. When they do their dirty deed like this man on trial right now, Van Dyke, there was a silent code of silence because the police say, if they're going to play dirty, we're going to play dirty. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Listen. Christ will never ask you to shoot or kill. He'll never ask you to sell or buy guns. 
but he will ask you to take a bullet for him. He may ask you to take a jail or prison sentence for his sake, which means you're going to do whatever he asks you to do, even if it means that you're going to, your life might be called to be given. You might have to serve a sentence, like many of our brothers and sisters are doing. Persecution, by the way, is coming this way. It's long since been in some of these other countries, as I mentioned, but it's coming to North America. The question is, will you be ready when it comes? And maybe our gang members can teach us a thing or two about loyalty and priority. Number three, a good follower of Christ puts Christ and his church above all others and all other things. It's about loyalty and priority. Verse 40, Jesus says, he who receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because, of his, because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to the one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Number four, and finally, a good follower of Christ is an ambassador. An ambassador who will be rewarded for representing Christ well. See, if you were appointed by the President of the United States as an ambassador to another country, it means that you represent the interests of the United States and the President to the country to which you are sent and stationed. And, and that host country has the obligation to welcome you, receive you, even allowing us to build a residence for you and have offices to conduct official business of our country abroad. So when ambassadors are received by the host country, it's as if they are receiving the president and the entire nation of the U.S. But if they're not received, then that country is saying that they not only reject the ambassador, but they also reject the president and the country who sent them. And that is what Jesus is saying here. When we go about our day and take the opportunity to have gospel conversations, to share our testimony of salvation with others, if they receive us and our gospel message, they receive Christ. And the God himself who sent Christ and who sent us. And you know what? They're going to be rewarded and we will be rewarded. Listen, don't ever think that God doesn't know what you do in Christ's name and for his church. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why so many people are not engaged and involved. Because you don't realize the blessings and the rewards that come with faithful service and faithful followership. It's interesting, in many of our local team sports, there is a trophy that's given. For everyone, there's even a trophy for participation, which I don't necessarily agree with, but there's a trophy for everyone, win or lose. If you just show up, you get a trophy at the end. You go to college, you get a piece of paper when you finish the course. You proudly display it, hang it up in your office, your room, because it represents the hard work that you did and it's part of your reward. And, it, and part of the reward is you get 
opportunities to then practice your profession and earn big money or medium-sized money or little money, whatever. What's your, that's your reward. And you're willing to put in the work because you know that there's a reward to come. I want to remind us today, Jesus is reminding us that you will never do anything, even the, the smallest thing is giving a child a cold cup of water who is thirsty. You do it in Jesus' name with a motivation of love and service to him. Jesus says God sees you and you will be rewarded. He sees you. He sees us. He knows our hearts. He knows our busy lives and our busy schedules. But he still wants to be number one. He wants us to take a hard look at our lives and our schedules and to move some things around so that we have better balance in our priorities which reflect his glory, his honor, and his worth to us. Because we are being hypocrites when we come in here every week and sing how great and glorious God is and then we look at our schedules and our schedules and the way we spend our money does not reflect the glory of God and his worth to us. That is hypocritical. So today God sent me here to give you a message. The message is take a look, a hard look at your schedule. Take a hard look at your budget your finances, and ask yourself, is God pleased with how I am spending the two most precious commodities that he's given to me, my time and my money? I can't answer that question for you, and I won't tell you what to do. All I can tell you is God requires, if you're going to be a follower of his, to give him everything and to prioritize him because he has earned that place in your heart, in your life, in your schedule, in your checkbook. He's earned it. And nobody else has. Walmart hasn't earned it. Amazon hasn't earned it. Nike hasn't earned it. NFL, NBA, they have not earned that place. Because nobody else has died on the cross for you like Jesus did. Nobody. so God takes notice and he will bless us, he will reward us in many ways in this life but in more ways than we can count infinitely we will be rewarded when we get home. Chapter 1 of verse, or chapter 11 verse 1 says this, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, again remember this is in the context of Jesus talking to his disciples. Those who said, yes, I want to follow you, Jesus. He's given them all these instructions. And then he went from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee, where he would garner more disciples that would follow after him. And that after he left, his disciples would then make other disciples of those. Listen, Jesus has instructed us in what it means to be his disciples, his learners, his followers. My last question for us is this, who's in? Who's in? And are we all in? Are we all in? 
And here's where God's grace comes in. If you're not all in, what you're thinking about it, you got unanswered questions, you're struggling, you're wrestling, his grace is sufficient for you. You might need more time before you say, I'm all in. His grace is sufficient. But hear the call to discipleship. And when you get ready to be all in, let's lock arms and let's do this thing together. In Jesus' name, let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed, this is God's time to receive worship and glory from those who have received his word. I don't know what God is saying to you. I don't know where you are in your spiritual